Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 140. Uh, the MLB postseason is underway. we got some off-season training going on at the facilities, so things are definitely getting busy. Um, this is actually going to be the last episode before a brief hiatus, just while we take some time to get our feet underneath us and stockpile some content for a good uh, winter session here with the podcast. Um, but we're going to wrap up with a, a listener q and I've um, got a lot of good questions from some folks on a variety of topics, so I'm going to handle this one solo, and we come back back um, in the next few weeks, we're actually going to have some really, really good guests that'll be sitting down to chat once their major league season is over. I'm also going to talk to some college coaches uh, who have finished up fall ball and are kind of prepping for the spring. And I, and I think they'll have a lot to share on the, the leadership and coaching side of things as well. So cool couple episodes coming up, but for now, um, let's delve in on some good questions from our listeners. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for Sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on-the-road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. Okay, let's get to the questions for this week. Um, So the first one, I've heard you talk several times about how there are checks and balances in the throwing shoulder. Can you please elaborate on what that means? Um, and I, I definitely have talked about this in the past and not just with respect to throwing shoulders. This is also something, um, you know, that we certainly see, you know, in any athletic population, anybody who lifts weights and even in just, you know, general population folks who have rotator cuff repairs and frozen shoulder and things like that. Um, and I think, you know, it's good to kind of have an anatomical basis for just about everything. So the first thing I would say is just appreciate that the body is a wonderfully designed system. Um, you know, and there, there are multiple systems that are in play there. It's not just, you know, what we're going to talk about from this musculoskeletal, you know, kind of with a fascial anatomy over 
overlay there, but you know, there's there's an interaction with a number of different um, systems throughout your body, whether it's the endocrine system, lymphatic system, all those different things that we have to keep in mind. But you know, the big thing that I try to instill in some of the young coaches just is an appreciation for the difference between arthrokinematics and osteokinematics. And it sounds like alphabet soup, but it's it's really an important thing for everyone to understand. In the context of arthrokinematics, that's really speaking to like the finer motions of the joint, the rolling, the rocking, the gliding that takes place. Um, conversely, osteokinematics is the big movements, right? It's the flexion, it's the extension, the internal and external rotation, the abduction, the adduction. And what to appreciate is there's a, a delicate balance between the two of these at really every joint, but particularly at the shoulder. What we know is, you know, there, there's not a whole lot of clearance under the acromion process. You know, physiologically, impingement is probably a norm for most people. You might have like five millimeters to work with. So, you know, in a situation like that, when you start laying down some reactive changes, you you, know, you push the rotator cuff fatigue, there's alignment that's not in play. You know, you're dealing with some, some challenging circumstances where your shoulder has to be really controlled with a tight window. And that's where this discussion of checks and balances takes place. So at your shoulder, you have these powerful internal rotators, latissimus dorsi, pectoralis major, teres major, anterior deltoid, and they all have attachments that are more distal or they're, they're further down on the humerus, the upper arm. And, and this is really, really important because what you have to appreciate is it's like moving a kid to the end of the seesaw, right? When, when you move him further away from the center, he, he is perceived as heavier. So by giving these muscles attachment points that are a little bit further down the humerus towards the hand, you put them in a position to be really, really powerful. And, and it's you know probably especially significant for the lat because your lat doesn't just attach on your humerus. Um, it actually starts down on your, your thoracolumbar fascia. So basically a, a collection of fascia down at your lower back. And actually in a small percentage of the population, even attaches on the ilium on the top of the pelvis. Um, and as it works its way up, it, you know, costal attachments on the rib cage and about 40% of the population, it attaches on the, the scapula and that runs up to the humerus. It's this huge muscle that's, you know, big picture, you know, role is to transfer force from the lower body to the upper body. And what we know is if you look at amateur pitchers versus professional pitchers, professional pitchers tend to have much higher, like 200% higher lat recruitment during acceleration. And the reason is very simple. They understand how to use big muscles to do big jobs. And, and that's a really big deal um, because you don't want your rotator cuff, you know, these smaller muscles to really have to generate a ton of, you know, force production for the sake of movement. You want them doing their job to kind of do the balances to, to actually control the shoulder joint in this tight window, Arthur kinematically. So the challenge with inserting lower down on the arm is that it does give us, you know, more force production potential, you know, in the vein of the seesaw discussion, but it leaves the ball and jock socket joint more vulnerable. So the, the rotator cuff, which actually inserts on the ball, the humeral head can control it so that it doesn't glide forward or up as these big muscles do your job. So as, as a pitcher lays his arm back into full external rotation, there's a tendency of the ball to want to slide forward in the socket. Um, and that's a very, very, you know, significant thing. That humeral anterior glide creates a lot of challenges in the front of the shoulder, whether it's irritating the biceps tendon, whether it's irritating the rotator cuff, whether it's, you know, kind of hanging out on that neurovascular bundle and creating nerve symptoms or, or you know, a blood clot or whatever it may be. And, and really the subscapularis is a huge player here. It's, it's a, the biggest rotator cuff muscle. It's the only internal rotator that actually attaches 
proximally on the humerus it attaches on the humeral head and it's you know it's why that you know muscle gets so fibrotic and nasty and why it's so important for for pitchers and really any kind of throw to get manual therapy on it to preserve that tissue length slash density you're in a lot of trouble if it doesn't do its job and interestingly subscapularis injuries are far and away the hardest rotator cuff pathology to to deal with um you know not just because it's kind of a hard you know, muscle to get to, it's a little bit hidden um, anatomically, but it's because its its role is so essential and its cross-sectional area is huge. It's the only cuff tendon that kind of competes directly or balances out latissimus dorsi and pectoralis major and, um, you know, teres major and del- anterior deltoid. So it's, it's different than the other cuff tendons, even though it works with them, you know, to really work to depress the humeral head. It's the one that has probably the most prominent role in keeping the ball from sliding too far so forward in the socket. Um, so now as we, we spoke into how the ball has to be controlled on the socket, you also have to consider the socket as a second key example of the checks and balances that are important as well. So you can have the strongest rotator cuff in the world, not just subscapularis, but you know, the other three as well. But if the socket, which is really the glenoid portion of the scapula, if it's not positioned correctly, it really doesn't matter. Um, you know, I've heard, you know, the ball and socket interaction between the scapula and the humeral head, um, you know, likened to a golf ball sitting on a golf tee. But I'm really, you know, the longer I've thought about this, not sure I, I really like that analogy. And it's for two reasons. The first one is that the tee is usually broken. In other words, most, you know, throwers have a compromised, compromised labrum of some sort. So imagine like a chip on the edge of that tee that mechanically takes down its stability. Um, you know, and certainly you can get, you know, defects in the, you know, the, the humeral head or, you know, issues with the, the actual uh, socket itself on the scapula. But really the, the analogy doesn't speak well enough to the dynamic nature of this, you know, humorous scapular interaction, this ball and socket interaction. It, and, and I heard the analogy of a seal balancing a ball on its nose, and it's probably a, a better example because it probably gives rise to us appreciating that the, the socket is really that small and the ball is really that big. So um, if a scapula does not move correctly on the rib cage, um, you're going to have to get accessory motion somewhere else. And, and what that means is, you know, I, I use the analogy of like robbing Peter to pay Paul, but it's it's typically going to come through excessive glenohumeral or ball and socket motion. Basically, the arm's going to move too much on the shoulder blade when the shoulder blade doesn't move enough on the rib cage. And if you look at most shoulder issues in throwers, they're typically anterior and superior shoulder issues. They hurt in the front and they hurt on top. And this typically happens because the socket doesn't move enough into into upward rotation or tip back sufficiently into scapular posterior tilt. So the anterior aspect of the joint is compromised during layback or ball release. And this is why like test retest is so powerful when you're dealing with throwers. Like you'll sometimes see people who have anterior or sh- uh, superior shoulder discomfort. And I, and I talk about this at length in my, my sturdy shoulders uh, product, but you know, you basically, you know, take them through some kind of provocative test if you're in the clinical realm and then you just do a repositioning. A lot of times you guide them into a little bit of scapular posterior tilt and all their symptoms go away. Or you guide them into some scapular upward rotation and all of a sudden their symptoms go away. And you'll see some people who sit really, really low in like an aggressive scapular depression and you know they're, they're toned up like crazy through the lats and you actually like guide them into just pure elevation. You basically serve as an upper trap and right away all their symptoms go away. So I always look for modifiers that give us clues into what you know, movement isn't happening the way that we want to. Um, but when the, the socket doesn't move into upward rotation or tip back 
in the scapular posterior tilt, typically you're going to see the anterior aspect of the joint and the superior aspect of the joint compromised during, you know, that layback feature when you've got to get that extreme external rotation, which creates a little bit more anterior gliding, or it'll happen at ball release where there's a big distraction force on the humeral head and it wants to kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, anterior dislocate. If your rotator cuff tendons don't do their job and what the scapular control thing does for the cuff is it gives it a longer runway over which to decelerate and you're able to use your lower half more effectively to, to assist in the process. You know, this is just another example, like poor uh, upward rotation of the clavicle can create unwanted accessory motion down the chain, you know, as can a lack of cervical or thoracic spine motion. You always want to work proximal to distal and these things can have trickle downs effect um, to where we, we don't want to get motion. Um, so really this, this underscores not just the importance of understanding your anatomy, but I think it also underscores the importance of high quality technique during your arm care. Um, and I think this is why so often we see players who have like a Tommy John surgery and then they come back and have shoulder discomfort or thoracic outlet surgery or something like that is they do a ton of exercises as part of their rehab, but they may not do them in the perfect patterns. So as a result, they create other problems. They just kind of shift the stress elsewhere and you can have the same underlying movement dysfunction, create multiple pathologies. Um, and really with any good arm care execution, execution, you're working on toning down bad stiffness while establishing good stiffness. That's the nature of everything that we do from coaching, you know, high quality movement, you know, so what are the things that we, we commonly see in our, our arm care programs that make people worse? Well, you know, people in like heavy forward head posture, right? If you, if you go into a big forward head posture, you get a bunch of upper cervical extension and you kind of increase recruitment of the later scapulae. Um, which is a downward rotator that, you know, inherently competes with your ability to upwardly rotate, you know, with serratus and upper traps and lower traps, you know, we'll, we'll see people that get cued to pinch your scaps and kind of like pin them down and back. Um, you know, when you pinch your scaps towards the midline, you know, it, first off, it's not really a functional way of how the shoulder moves where you need upward rotation to accommodate the arms coming up. But what you tend to see is, is increased rhomboid recruitment. Um, and the rhomboids are actually a downward rotator. So you get these guys that are really hitchy towards the midline where they'll actually pinch the scaps together before they upwardly rotate. So there's a, a timing issue in place. And you will see a lot of players that just have tons and tons of, of rhomboid tone. And um, these are some of the athletes who do incredibly well with a lot of like the upper back expansion breathing work. Um, but you're, you're really toning up a downward rotator by throwing everything on rhomboids. And that competes with what most throwers need. We know throwers lose upward rotation over the course of a season. And if you're, your cues are to just, you know, set your scaps, pinch them together. That's not really where you want to be long-term. And certainly beyond just the scaps back, the scaps down cue is challenging, right? The, the intention is really well as, hey, posteriorly tilt your shoulder blade. What we see with a lot of athletes is they substitute an aggressive scapular depression in place of scapular posterior tilt. So what they do is they pull the whole shirtle down, shoulder girdle down and kind of this, this gross extension slash depression pattern and they tone up their lats. Um, while the scapula doesn't really posterior tilt at all. In fact, in a lot of those athletes, it'll tilt forward as they tug down. So you want to tone down your lats so you can actually get your low trap to do its job on your, your trap raises and some of your wall slides and things like that. Um, so those are, you know, three common things, but I, but I think big picture, we need to ask our athletes where they feel exercises. Um, if you only notice the front and the top of your shoulder working during your arm care exercises, you're probably doing them wrong. Like if you're, if you're doing your rotator cuff exercise and you feel it all in your, your biceps tendon, that's probably not a great long-term strategy. So I'm, I'm big on, you know, cutting the, the actual number of exercises and arm care programs down by two thirds, 
really focusing on high quality work, making sure the motion is coming from the right places. And then sometimes there's a, there's a place for, for good manual therapy, positional breathing, um, you know, mobility exercises, anything like that to transiently open up some motion. So you give athletes a little bit of a window for, for learning better patterns to be successful. So, you know, this, this all started with a discussion of checks and balances in the throwing shoulder. Um, and, and certainly we, we kind of talked about the osteokinematics, the arthrokinematics, why, you know, more distal insertions make things a little bit more challenging, even if they do allow for higher level performance. But, you know, what I think it speaks to is that every exercise that we program and every rep that we coach is either reaffirming or, you know, taking away solid movement in the, in the context of, you know, managing out good and bad stiffness. That's what the checks and balances really are. So, you know, in the throwing shoulder, like we need better stiffness through our rotator cuff to overpower the heavy stiffness through all those, you know, basically accelerators during, you know, the throwing delivery. And that's what keeps us healthy long-term. So hopefully this makes some sense. Um, and, and certainly we can go much, much deeper on this at pretty much every joint in the body. We're just talking about the shoulder this particular instance. We interrupt this episode with a quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's NSF certified all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food source ingredients designed to support your body's nutritional needs. I use this product daily and a ton of our athletes do as well. Head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and claim my special offer today for 10 free travel packs with your first purchase. I'd encourage you to give it a shot too, especially because of this great offer and because it gives you peace of mind knowing that you're covering all your nutritional bases. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y to get that special offer. For our second question, what are some non-traditional predictors of injury that we need to keep in mind in the baseball world? Um, I actually love this question. Something's, you know, kind of constantly on my mind on across all levels of baseball from amateur all the way up to the major leagues. And I'm always reminded of a great quote from, from Mike. Well, Mike's a good friend and he talked a lot about, you know, everything is about closing the gap between what you know and what you can implement. Um, so everybody gets really, really excited about advanced training concepts and the new exercise they saw on Instagram and the great seminar they went to and having 57 different positional breathing exercises they can use at the start of every warm up. But at the end of the day, we always have to be mindful of what athletes are willing to do, what they're commit to, what fits in the context of their life what may inherently compete with their pre-existing notions about training, what they've had for successes and failures with previous coaches before you. And one of the things that I come back to in the baseball world that I think is, is absolutely fascinating is that, you know, the gap is really, really large. Your, your nerd is going to want to take you to the point where what you know goes sky high, when what your implement doesn't really change. So, you know, one of the things that I've made a, a steadfast effort at over the last couple of years is, is appreciating what we can implement. And a lot of that's very relationship driven is, you know, you're going to be able to implement a lot more with an athlete who trusts you that you've known for an extended period of time. And what's interesting in the, in the baseball world is there, there are four that always jump out at me. And, you know, I'll go through them one by one. The first is, is very easy, tobacco. If you can get tobacco out of baseball, you see a substantial reduction in injury. Um, it's a, unfortunately, chewing tobacco dip is, is a very accepted part of baseball. Um, sadly, across all levels, it drives me bonkers when I see a youth coach dipping in front of, you know, his players. But, um, you know, we know that the research is out there. Like smokers have markedly higher incidences of, you know, rotator cuff failures after surgery. It's a big deal. So nicotine in and of itself is, is pretty hard on tissue quality. 
Um, and that's something that, you know, if we can change that, it's certainly a hard thing for, for athletes to kick. So the answer is always don't ever start it. Um, but that's a big one. The second one I would say is, you know, follow suit pretty quickly is, is alcohol consumption. You know, I talk to any manual therapist, you know, some of the best on the planet will joke that they can actually feel the difference in, in an athlete's tissue the day after a night of drinking. So you take care of tobacco and alcohol, you get those out of the equation and, good things always seem to happen for athletes. Um, not only that, it, it seems to improve a ton of different things. You know, alcohol consumption can impact sleep quality. And certainly generally people will, uh, you know, eat worse food when they're consuming a lot of alcohol just because of where that alcohol is consumed and what's available. Um, just has a very big trickle down effect, you know, it may impact hydration status in a variety of different ways. So those two are, are lifestyle habits that I think are really important. And then the third one kind of relates to it, but, but poor sleep quality. You know, I think this is something that, you know, is probably overlooked as travel has gotten more challenging in the major league baseball realm, people crossing time zones more often. Um, you know, you'll see situations where, where players are, are getting into hotels at, at 5 a.m. and then playing a 7 p.m. game like they go and they sleep. But the sleep quality is never going to be the same when you change, you know, basically to a new time zone. Your circadian rhythms are thrown all out of whack and you got in play. So you know, the research, you know, is, is very, very um, you know, definitive in the sense that, you know, you, you deprive college athletes of sleep and there's injury rates go sky high. Um, we know that there's research that shows that injury rates go sky high during uh, exam time, you know, for college athletes as well. So poor sleep quality, I think, is a really, really big one. And, you know, getting rid of tobacco, getting rid of alcohol and, you know, improving sleep quality are not the sexy things that we read about or we go to seminars about. But they are so impactful for athletes when they make a commitment to actually taking care of these things. Um, generally speaking, everything else kind of follows suit. You know, glucose tolerance improves when you sleep better. You're less likely to overeat. So you may see changes in, in some of these, these body composition dynamics. Um, those are really big. And then the last one that I think is, is particularly imperative um, in the baseball world is, is just the concept of warming up. And the challenge with baseball is at all levels, and particularly in the major club, it's an incredibly long season. Um, I actually spoke with, with Nick Swisher the other day, and he talked about in 2019 when the Yankees won the World Series, they played 211 total games um, over spring training, regular season, postseason, all of that. And when you're talking about doing the same thing effectively for, you know, effectively two thirds of the year, there's always going to be a drift, right? Some people are really, really locked in, you know, in their warmups, you know, the first week of spring training. And then, you know, the grind kind of starts and the warmups can get shorter, you know, guys, you know, aren't gung ho about like actually going through it. And if you look at the best players on the planet, the guys that are really, really locked in and healthy for a long time, the routine is steadfast. It doesn't deviate when things are going well, things are going bad, when they're tired, when they're not tired, they're always really, really good about warming up. And, and what's really interesting is we have some good research. The FIFA 11, you know, is, is, you know, been put out there and it's shown to reduce ACL injury risk and hamstrings injury risk. And the, the fascinating thing about the FIFA 11 is it's actually a, a relatively underwhelming collection of exercises. I don't mean it's bad. It's just very basic. Um, we're talking about foundational stuff that teenage soccer players can do before they go out and they, they play soccer. Um, and what they've, they've shown is like, uh, you know, like I said, a really big reduction in just, you know, having any kind of lower extremity injury. So I, I think there's a lot that we can take from that over an extended period of time is you do the, just a few very basic things well um, and good things happen. So it's much more about accountability, making good lifestyle decisions. And then certainly there's other stuff that you can look at. Um, and, and one of those things, you know, to build on this is, is look for stressors that don't show up in workload. 
you know, and, and I think um, that can go in a number of different directions, right? We have we have certain guys that take warm-ups to the extreme. The guy that's got a binder because he's visited 15 different facilities and watched every video on YouTube and Instagram. So, you know, he's very caught up in this concept of adding, adding, adding. And before you know it, the warm-up takes, you know, three and a half hours before they ever get out to the field. You know, that's a red flag. Um, you know, certainly excessive pregame throwing, I think, is something that gets, gets overlooked. If you look at players, you know, we, in the amateur ranks, we tend to track, you know, just innings or, or pitch count within the game. But no one really talks about the pitches that are taking place, warming up pregame, the number of pitches in the bullpen, um, you know, any of those like, you know, scenarios where like a pitcher may get hot as an amateur pitcher in the bullpen. I've never seen a college that really tracks, you know, when a when a pitcher gets hot and then doesn't go in the game. Um, you know, too many pitches in the bullpen is something that a lot of players need to learn when they get to the big leagues. It's, hey, this isn't the minor leagues. It's not an easy runway. Like you sometimes got to get hot really quickly. So stay warm so that you can, you can kind of save your bullets a little bit before you go in the game. So in general, I just always try to be mindful of stressors that don't show up in our classic interpretations of, of workload. And, and this is one way, place where I actually do like activity monitors um, that athletes wear. Um, even if they aren't perfectly accurate, you know, like we know, like sleep tracking, most of them aren't very accurate. Um, like fatigue science does an amazing job. Some of the other, you know, options out there aren't quite as good, but they are reasonably reliable. Like they might not be accurate, but at least they reproduce somewhat similar measurements, um, to document how much you move and, you know, and help you establish what your baseline activity level and, you know, how much time you spend in bed. Um, you know, and they, they obviously tell you how much you deviate from it, even if they're not perfectly meticulous with, you know, hey, you threw the ball and 95 versus you threw the ball at 88. Um, so I think that's a, a really important dynamic. And then last but not least, you know, I think we get too advanced at times and initial fitness capacity gets more overlooked than ever because athletes are exposed to many high level training concepts on social media. And because coaches like to use the sexy stuff in their toolboxes, um, untrained is untrained though. You, you can't step steps. So I think we have a lot of athletes nowadays that think they're more advanced than they are. It's the, it's the 12 year old that's asking for the, you know, insanely constructed weighted ball program, you know, or, you know, some crazy involved strength conditioning dynamic that they haven't earned because they can't even deadlift 135. So, you know, big picture, what are the things to look at for non-traditional non predictors of injury, tobacco, alcohol, sleep quality, and skipping warmups, watch for any kind of stressors that don't show up in workload, uh, you know, and then be mindful of initial fitness capacity. Like it's really hard to change the tires on a, on a car with no horsepower while it's still moving. So good off season training is always the best way to, to predict injury. Um, you know, if, if they didn't do a good job, they're in a rough spot when they show up. And for our third and final question for today, what are some next frontiers in baseball that get you excited? This is actually a great question. Um, and you know, I look at next frontiers as what are ways that we can either get in higher quality work safely or what are implements, you know, that can potentially make our training more productive. Um, you know, I think like the, the concept of bat fitting now for hitters is an exciting progression. We've already heard about, um, you know, players that have really thrived with doing it. And I think Joey Votto was kind of one of the first. And I know Paul Goldschmidt's talked about it. Um, but I think we're going to see more and more companies jump into that fold and, and really match bats to what players really need. And, you know, we've obviously seen it in the golf world and it makes perfect sense that it would, you know, eventually, 
uh, come to the baseball world as well. And I think in a similar vein, cleat adjustments are going to be a big next frontier. I'm fortunate to work with New Balance and they've done some incredible stuff in their sports science lab. You know, everything from, you know, foot scans for athletes and, and looking at them dynamically under different patterns, whether it's sprinting, throwing, hitting, um, you know, having 3D printing has really changed the game where, you know, athletes may be able to relocate cleats on the shoe. Uh, to best match the, the wear patterns, the foot types. Um, it was several years ago, Corey Kluber wore the first ever 3D printed cleat in a, in a game. They were able to do a custom cleat for him. So that was, you know, encouraging. And the technology has advanced really, really quickly in the years ahead. So I'm, I'm excited to communicate with New Balance on that and talk about, you know, how you can move a cleat around for a guy that may have a, you know, a previous inter- area of injury or a certain foot type that maybe doesn't jive perfectly well. We're also seeing advances in the, in the type of materials that are used in shoes because, you know, it's interesting. We look a lot at, at, at training initiatives to prevent lower extremity injuries and things like that. But at the end of the day, we're always kind of at the mercy of, of what the shoe companies, you know, provide for the athlete, how much time the athlete spends in that shoe. Um, so I think I've been more proactive this year about inquiring about what guys wear, what they traditionally worn. In Major League Baseball, you'll see a lot of guys that wear old models. They find a 2018 edition that they really like, so they'll get 15 pairs of them and save them just because they, you know, they're worried that the new model won't necessarily work. We've seen athletes that have adjusted, you know, from a high top to a mid and seen, you know, a lot of benefits there. So I think that the one thing that probably the casual observer doesn't appreciate is just A, how much time everybody spends on their feet and cleats in a major league game, you know, or college game for that matter. Just a lot of time to be in, you know, what typically is not nearly as comfortable as a a cross trainer running shoe. Um, But then I think beyond that, I think uh, it's fascinating to see how much guys move completely different in their shoes. You know, certainly the pitchers, hitters, there, there are certain competencies in their deliveries or in their swings that are consistent across, um, you know, every player, but there are athletes that do much, much different things and may need support in their shoes in different way. And if, if the shoe isn't giving them that, um, you know, the cleats aren't, you know, we're allowing them to work into the ground effectively. It can certainly create some, some downstream effects. So we, you know, we're, we're spending a lot more time looking at footwear. And I remember a good conversation, um, with a friend who worked in, in major league baseball probably 10 years ago. And the, the, the message was you'll see more Achilles and foot issues after holidays than at any other point. Why everybody gets the custom Mother's Day cleat or Father's Day cleat or, you know, Memorial Day cleat or whatever it is. And they throw it on and they wear a brand new cleat that may not match what they've traditionally worn. And they wind up, you know, having foot discomfort for a couple of years. So, you know, I think in the past we'd always just, you know, looked at, you know, make sure you're getting your cleats early enough before spring training, you know, wear them enough so that it's not going to hit you like a cold bucket of water on the first day of spring training when you're standing in them for three hours. But I think we can take it a step further and we can, we can make cleats that actually work better for guys. So it's, I'm excited to talk a lot with new balance for this and the years ahead because the technology they have is really kind of changing the game. And then last one, you know, I think building on this, this concept of anything that allows athletes to get in higher quality work with less downside, you know, I think if, if you look in like the endurance community, obviously Alter G in the treadmill that allows you to deload your body weight, you know, has allowed a lot of marathoners to, to log much, much more mileage without, you know, the risk of, you know, having stress fractures and tendinopathies and things like that. And, you know, I think we're seeing a little bit of that in the baseball world as well. You, you see the number of guys that are, 
you know, seeing high speed, you know, velo on the hitting machines using foam balls instead of regular baseballs just because it doesn't blow up thumbs and wrists nearly as bad. So they can see a lot more velocity to keep track with, you know, what, what pitchers are doing. Um, so I think that's exciting. The other thing is, you know, looking more at like virtual reality. I think that's probably a next step for, uh, you know, high level hitters to really prepare. I think historically technology has always benefited pitchers a lot more in the way that they can use electronic cameras. They can use, you know, a variety of the ball tracking systems, whether it's Rapsodo, TrackMan, Hawkeye, um, Yawker Tech, any of those out there. Uh, to effectively give them feedback on, you know, how they're developing pitches. But hitters were always very reactionary and they haven't been able to do nearly as much. You know, I think now we're getting to a point where you, know, you have ways to see velo safely more often. You have more coaches using random practice, you know, so actual hitting, you know, motor learning principles instead of just grooving guys, you know, 60 mile an hour fastballs to make them feel good. And then I think virtual reality is going to change the game because it's going to allow a lot of guys to effectively see higher level arms. Um, more regularly and, and prepare in a more specific way. So some exciting times in, in baseball in terms of next frontiers. Um, these are the things that I often, you know, think about at 3 a.m. as I'm staring into blackness. So it'll be cool to see how this all, um, you know, kind of unfolds. But, um, you know, by all means, if you guys have next frontiers that are intriguing to you, uh, shoot us an email at elite baseball podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to, to hear what you got going and maybe we can talk about it on a future episode. <laughs>